1: Good afternoon. This is uh, our last afternoon together, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but it's true. That every time we start to end, I feel like we're just about to start.
0: So stay five more days? it
1: doesn't matter if I taught here for 30 days on day 30 I would have this feeling that like we're just about to get into the good part it's always like this it's the opposite of human relationships where as it's ending you feel like it should have ended two years ago So, um, let's recap. Uh, Yesterday, we talked about the Buddha in his three watches of the night. And in the third watch of the night, him having this awakening. Or what we tend to call enlightenment. And when you hear somebody say the word enlightenment, the question you should ask yourself is... Enlightened about what? Otherwise, we have this almost absurd idea that something happens to someone when they're now enlightened about all things. So when you uh, wake up, you're waking up to something in particular. And I think this is a piece that really gets missed, I think. And so the Buddha describes that what he woke up to was uh, paticca samupada, conditioned co-arising. And so yesterday we talked about the relationship between impermanence, uh, conditioned arising, and also how conditioned arising teaches us that at the center of things is Everything. In other words, there can't be a center of the thing because the center of the thing is everything. Which shows us uh, or reminds us uh, not to cling to things as one thing, but to see how they're contingent and impermanent. And you have to hear that teaching every day. Because it's so easy to forget. I feel like I've come to Copenhagen in my 20s, in my 30s, now in my 40s. And probably every time I come, I say exactly the same thing. And I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, I have to keep doing this. Because I wake up every morning and I forget. So the other thing we talked about yesterday is symptoms and how maybe we don't really need to cure our symptoms but just to really have more space around them so that we can open up to what's happening in our life and also how we ended yesterday also saying how when you numb yourself when you numb yourself because of negative emotions that you feel, you also end up numbing the positive emotions. Numbing is numbing. Doesn't matter what end of the spectrum it happens on. So today, I wanted to jump ahead to line 163. Sorry, 160. Your own self is your own mainstay. For who else could your mainstay be? With you yourself well trained, you obtain the mainstay hard to obtain. And let's put that together with line 163. They're easy to do. Things of no good and no use to yourself. What's truly useful and good is truly harder than hard to do. (laughs) So this is very interesting. At first, he says that what he woke up to is conditioned existence, right, on the third watch of the night. And then, he seems to switch gears and say, actually, the most important thing you should really pay attention is what's happening for you. Doesn't that seem strange to you? But maybe this is actually the key to relationship. Is that when you really know what you feel and what you need and how you operate, then you can be more in tune to what others need and how others feel. Because isn't it true when we're in relationship, if we don't really know how we feel, we're not really in relationship. So, for example, a young person who grows up always having to take care of the emotions of their caregiver ends up having really good radar for how other people feel. Really tuned in to the feelings of other people. And on the outside, that seems like the perfect person to have a relationship with. (laughs) (laughs) Because they ask you about how you're feeling. They nod. They understand. They'll do anything to help you be soothed. So you feel supported.
2: You can sometimes see it before you see it yourself. Yeah. Your needs. Exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. But at the expense of their own experience. So then, at the beginning, that feels quite good, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But after a while... You don't know who you're in relationship with. And if you take this a little bit further, their self esteem ends up being dependent on how you feel. Right? Has anyone done this before?
0: <laughs> I have this
1: joke, I always say, maybe you've heard it, that everybody should have a codependent relationship in their 20s. <laughs> Just so you know what it's like, and then you grow out of it. <laughs> so, if I don't know if anyone here is in their 20s, is anybody in their 20s? So, you should go get a codependent relationship and just do it for a few years until it ends up in flames. <laughs> That's a joke. Uh, so, be careful. Because one of the things that Mara does is it always tries to figure out in your life How you can be safe But sometimes the way we try and be safe or how we interpret safety is comfort and Usually when we're comfortable it is it actually can just be working out of habit So don't trade your Buddha nature for safety we need to be awake and we need to be awake to the changing conditions of our own bodies and our hearts and our relationships not fixing who we think we are, not fixing other people, not fixing what we say, not fixing anything to be attuned to what's happening in present experience so that we can have a more spontaneous, a creative unrehearsed Engagement with uh, reality. So that what moves through your body you take less personally.
0: <coughs>
1: and then what happens for other people you take more personally. So if you see someone being hurt, you should take it very personally. If you see groups of people being oppressed, you should take it very personally. If you see animals being treated unfairly, you should take it very, very personally. And then, when you feel uh, strong emotions in your own mind, don't take it personally. Does anybody feel this at all in the sitting meditation practice? I hinted at it a little bit today, but when you hear sounds, they're not really inside or outside. They're just happening. It's like your attention is not happening inside or outside. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, where where a sound gets heard. So when you become connected to what's happening in your experience you don't have to take it so personally anymore and then when you see things happening in other people's experience you should take it very personally (laughs) and you should go do whatever you can to try and help others so um, let me read to you a story I've been reading you stories uh, uh, about the Buddha that makes him sound like a physician. And uh, these are stories I've been teasing out of the Pali canon because the Buddha thought of himself as a a doctor. We forget that now because we put him on the altar and we think he's, you know, an enlightened god. But the Buddha thought of himself as a physician. And I think sometimes when you hear some of these stories like the one yesterday where he sees a monk who's fallen into his own excrement who has dysentery and goes and washes him that doesn't match this image behind me does it it's somebody kneeling down helping somebody, bathing somebody so we need to get back to that idea I think of enlightenment as something that you do not as something you achieve you see and uh, here's another story Um, the Buddha is meeting with the monks and nuns and says to them let me tell you about the five characteristics of a person who is unable to be healed they can't get healed what are the five characteristics well first they won't take their medicine I love this, because you know, most meditators are like anti-medicine, but the Buddha is saying, if you need medicine, take medicine. Take the medicine. Number two, they don't observe moderation in taking the medicine. Number three, they take medicine, but they don't follow the prescription. (laughs) Number four, they don't disclose the real nature of their ailment to the nurse who desires their welfare and doesn't report whether their sickness is getting worse, getting better, or staying the same. In other words, they're not tuned enough into their body to be able to describe to the nurse whether their sickness is getting better, is getting worse, or staying the same. They're not in their life. They're not in their experience. And anyone here who does psychotherapy or does one-on-one work with people, this is really true. Because when you work with people who have a mindfulness practice, they can talk about their experience and track it in real time without jumping out of it so quickly. And it's a pleasure to do work with someone who can stay describing their experience without jumping out of it too fast. Number five, this is the fifth one. She is impatient of her bodily feelings that arise, whether they're painful, sharp, cutting, bitter, grievous, unpleasant, or life-destroying. Okay? So... Bodily feelings arise and the patient is really impatient. Isn't the word patient nice? Do you hear that? Yeah. So then he says, Well, what are the five characteristics of a sick person who is hard to nurse? These are them. And what does a sick what does a person who's easy to nurse, what what characterizes them? The opposite, of course. But then he flips it as usual and he says, Oh. But this has to be matched with a caregiver who possesses five characteristics themselves. Okay? So for those of you who are yoga teachers, um, caregivers, you know, caregivers of the media, here are the five things that you need to, to think about. One, so th- these are the negative attitudes, negative characteristics. One, they're incapable of prescribing medicine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Number two, they don't know the proper remedies. Right? So that's like the yoga teacher, you know, coming and so- someone comes in and they have grief because someone in their family died, and they said, "Oh, you should do more backbending."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Giving the wrong medicine.
0: Right?
1: No one's done this here, for sure. <laughs> Number three. One nurses the patient out of greed, and not out of charity. Does everybody know that experience? Like, I'm gonna help this person so that people see me. I'm not gonna help them because they're me. Number four, one is squeamish about the removal of shit, saliva, or vomit squeamish. Mm -hmm. Oh, how would you translate that?
0: It's a Yeah. Yeah.
1: If you see shit, or you see vomit, or you see saliva, someone you love has got saliva pouring out of their side of their mouth. Mm -hmm. And it just makes you go like this. Fine. No problem. But if that makes you turn away, then... uh, You have some practice to do, I think. Last, one is incapable of teaching the patient from time to time by cheering him, stirring him, or comforting him. So your job as a caregiver is also to be a cheerleader. Do you have cheerleaders in Denmark like they do in Texas? (laughs) Some
0: attempts, but not the same.
1: (laughs) Some attempts, yeah. So you should be a cheerleader for the patient, where sometimes your job is just to be with them, but sometimes it might be to make a joke. Sometimes it might be to cry next to them and rub their cold feet, and sometimes it might be to point out something funny about the nurse. These are the five characteristics the Buddha says that makes one a good nurse. Is to see these and work the opposite. So anyways, this is another good story, I think. Why am I telling you these stories, you might wonder? Because these are examples of the Buddha taking the teachings and doing something with them. And they're messy, they're full of shit. And vomit and saliva like your life. So that's the level of practice we all need to be working at. Which is we have to get our hands dirty. We have to be really in our experience. And this ties in to the conversation we had two days ago about perfectionism. On the one hand, we should set our ambitions very high and have a personal ambition to be awake and be compassionate and live a creative life. Some of you that means, I am so horrified by our reliance on nuclear power and coal and I'm going to do whatever I can to help build windmills. And someone else might say, I'm going to go back to school and become a midwife. (laughs) And somebody else might say, uh, my work is to leave my job and spend more time with my elderly parents looking after them. I have a student who did this. Their parents were really suffering. And they said to their parents, um, if... If it's possible, could you just tell me what I'm going to inherit in your will? They weren't very wealthy or something, just like middle class, you know. What am I going to inherit? Because is it enough money that I can leave my job and then I can take care of you guys? And they figured it out. They sold the house. They lived a little cheaper. And the person left their job and just looks after their parents. It's so beautiful to have that kind of conversation. So they said, "I don't need the money, like I don't need the money. I just want to make sure I have a little bit of money, to, you know, and I and I'll look after you. But if I if I have to have my job and look after you, I can't I can't do both things. It's not possible." Yeah. So, um when you go to look after your elderly parents or you look after someone who's sick uh, or you look after yourself the way you do it is you just show up because you don't know how to do it there's no technique you don't know how to do it you just show up you just show up and you can't do it perfectly so when you practice your backbending you should just show up for what the backbend is like that day but you don't have to be perfect and when you sit in meditation some days it's going to be perfect and some days it's going to be a mess like everything else so I want to make a distinction between personal ambition and perfectionism Personal ambition is when you get inspired to be a better version of yourself. Because it feeds your creativity and increases your compassion. And perfectionism is when you try to be a better person of yourself for someone else's image. You see? So personal ambition is healthy when it's for you, right? For yourself your creativity and your compassion. You feel it. You go to the gym, you go to the gym, you lift weights, your muscles feel really good, Heidi, your joints feel really good, everything feels great, right? But that's not the same thing as going to the gym and looking in the mirror and saying, I am looking really good. And my husband is going to be so impressed. (laughs) And since I don't have a husband, maybe if I get the right muscles, George Clooney (laughs) is going to notice. So perfectionism is craving. Do you understand what I mean by that? And when there's craving no matter what the addiction is, whenever there's addiction, whenever there's craving, we have to remember that underneath our craving, there is an original impulse, which is for intimacy. Underneath every kind of addiction, it doesn't matter if it's heroin, if it's sex, if it's money, whatever your addiction is, your addiction to notoriety, your addiction um, to work. How many people are addicted to work? Maybe not so many here. Yeah? But look around in the culture, right? There's this strange obsession with work, 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 entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. <laughs> That's the addiction, right? The more you work, the more you need entertainment. It's a terrible cycle, you know. But underneath your impulse, uh, your craving impulse, is always a wish for connection. And so, this is how we have compassion for people who have addiction, and they're all around us. Is it's really important to see that what they really want is a connection but it's gone through a strange plumbing system because of their history and something in all of us uh, wants to be free I'm sorry I'm not following my notes (laughs) I was hoping to get through the page then line 66 don't sacrifice your own welfare for that of another no matter how great realizing your own true welfare just really be intent on this of course this is not the end of the text this is just one line that marks the end of the pages we've photocopied but um, pay attention to what's good for you in your life and I think if you're really honest about that practice and this may sound naive that it will always include other people Will always include other people. Last night, I uh, was walking in the rain. It was cold. I went to Irma, as usual. And then I heard all this noise, and I looked up in an apartment. there's a, quite a large apartment, and there was all of these families and kids. All who were coming with food and having a big dinner together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All the strollers outside getting wet, uh, and many different age, ages. And it didn't seem like it was like a birthday party or anything, it just seemed to be like a bunch of people in the same apartment building who were all getting together and having that. And everyone was so happy. And so, one of the secrets to happiness is good food. (laughs) And the other is other people. So when the Buddha says here, the Buddha probably didn't say this. I mean, somebody probably wrote this down many, many years later. Um, But what seems to be saying is, uh, don't sacrifice your own joy. It's really important to know what turns you on. And to communicate that with others. Because there's nothing better than having someone in your life who's really in love with their life. Do you know that experience? We all know people like this, right? So, I'd like to sum up everything we've covered for the last six days Um, I've been reading a book um, um, that was written in the 1980s called Taking Leave of God by a British theologian named Don Cuppet who was born in the 1930s in England um, and he was a, a priest in the Catholic Church from 1960 to 1990, I think, Um, and then finally Mm -hmm. left. And in the 1980s, he wrote this book that became very famous in uh, theology called Taking Leave of God. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's really beautiful. But I wanted to... to, uh, So influenced by some of his ideas, um, if you want to do some background research, uh, I wanted to try and sum up some of the ways we can think about practice going forward after this workshop ends okay and then we're going to have a break and then we're going to do something else together okay so uh, number one um, this is it that's number one this is it There's nothing outside of this Your moment to moment experience uh, Has in it the seed of your awakening And the punchline is What do you wake up to? This Again and again we wake up to this We wake up out of our delusions Our desire for transcendence Our desire for thinking that God is somewhere else our desire for a better reincarnation, which nowadays, it's not a better reincarnation. In in ancient times, everybody wanted a better reincarnation. Now everybody wants to lose five pounds. (laughs) This is true. My mother told me this. I said to my mom once, like, what does everybody want? She said, well, I can tell you about my friends. And I said, what do they want? She said, everyone wants to lose five pounds. (laughs) (laughs) So, number one, this is it. Number two, uh, life has no outside. Everything is in this life. When you come into the world, you come into the world from this life. And when you leave the world... You go back into life. There isn't an outside to life. And even though we have an idea about death, when you die, you die into life. There's no outside. Number three, you have a stake in your life in other words everything you do makes a difference everything a stake like S-T-A-K-E like like, uh, you have a meaningful responsibility in your life it matters to have a stake in something means that Mm -hmm. you've invested in it it matters yeah What number is that?
0: Three.
1: Three? Number four. Um, Your life is all that you have and all you'll ever have. And it comes with a responsibility. Because it's all you've got. This is the only body you've got. These were the parents you got. This is the DNA you've got. Right? These are the feet you have, the digestion you have, the hair you have. This is it. And, you know, you can change some of it, as fashion dictates. But uh, this is what you've got, and this is what you've got to work with. So let's stop trying to change that so much. You're okay the way you are. even though you should still go to the gym and meditate and lose five pounds and, lose five pounds <laughs> and swim and go to the sauna and uh, help people. Next, what number is the next one? Five. Um, every human being also has an equal stake in life. So, it's not just you, but every human being. Has an equal stake? Yeah. yeah. Equal, equal or even?
2: Equal.
1: Equal. What's the next number? Okay. Number six, life has limits. So even though um, we want to do everything, our immune systems can't handle it. Even though food is so great, there's only so much lunch you can eat. Even though oil is so wonderful because it powers our cars. Uh, there's only so much oil we have there's a limit and oil in the ground is a sink you know it does something down there so maybe we should leave a little in the earth just a little so life has limits and the source of ethics comes from recognizing our limits So let's not be greedy teenagers. And let's grow up and see that life has limits. And so we should um, take more care in, in respecting those limits. If you've been practicing Ashtanga Yoga for 20 years, it's okay if you leave a few postures out from time to time. Well, don't tell anybody that. Just for you in this room. Because you're chosen
0: <laughs> what did you say about the source? I want to write it. Anyway.
1: that the, the, that recognizing the source of our—I'm just making this up. Yeah. Like I don't have good sentences here, but that recognizing the the limits is the source of ethics. What's the next one? Seven. Seven. Uh, Life comes with language. So you should pay very close attention to the way you use language because words have the power to heal and they also have the power to hurt very badly. And that's true with other people and with yourself. Also, language determines perception. So how you perceive Is determined by the stories that you tell yourself. So mindfulness is a political practice. Because when you can be mindful of the stories you tell yourself, then you can be more aware of the bias in your perception. That's why if you uh, work with kids, you should get them to read books and go to the theater and see lots of theater and especially uh, theater from other cultures because young kids need to really learn lots of different stories about their reality because then they internalize it so when they're perceiving their experience they have many stories through which to perceive their experience because perception is directly related to language. And we need better stories. We all need more stories.
0: And you said language determines perception.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, perception is not pure, perception is totally connected to our language. Uh, I think I had one more. Oh. Yeah. Life goes on and on and on, but your life is finite. Mm-hmm. It, has a, it has an end, an expiry date. You know like when you buy yogurt? Mm-hmm. Well, you probably don't know because you're a vegan. But anyways, there's this stuff called yogurt. It comes from a cow. <laughs> Everyone else is eating it. Anyways. Um, it has an expiry date and your life has an expiry date so life might go on and on and on but your life will stop and you might have amazing stories about your reincarnation as George Clooney (laughs) but I think the fact is, is that at the moment of death we have no idea what happens and in the next moment you have no idea what happens. Tomorrow, you have no idea what's going to happen. In five minutes, you have no idea what's going to happen. So, even though you might be convinced of how you're going to be reincarnated, we have to bring into our heart this surprise, this sense of surprise, that when we die, we have no idea what's going to happen. I'm sorry if that screws up your religion. You shouldn't take that as a belief system. All I'm saying is to live with this sense of surprise that the next moment is completely invisible. And so you should prepare yourself for death. Because you are not going to be there to experience it. So you should work now on letting go. Because it's better for your life right now. What number are we on now?
0: Number nine.
1: None of this can be negotiated. and number ten there is suffering and the only way to work with it is to open up your heart So, these are ten principles. Uh, I haven't made any of this formal. I've just been reading this week and writing these things down. Um, And I think that this is a way that you can live your life, but also that you can communicate the teachings to other people. Because it's a way that sidesteps belief systems. So I encourage you to uh, translate this into Danish or whatever language um, German and uh, to think about how to communicate these ideas and how to live these ideas because uh, I don't know about you but I'm sick of belief systems it's like enough already We need new stories. And we're living in this strange time where we're between stories. So like the dominant stories we tell, does anybody feel this? Like the stories that we tell, they don't actually match how things are. Like the story we tell about our economy doesn't match the number of people that are living uh, outside of store windows it doesn't match, right? the idea we have about sustainability and the statistics of our carbon footprint they don't match so we have to start looking more closely I used the example yesterday, I think of you know, you're in Denmark and Denmark is reducing its carbon footprint but when you buy Nike shoes that are made in China the carbon footprint for that purchase ends up being on the accounting records of China, not on the accounting records of Denmark. You see? So we need a new accounting system, right? which means we need a new story about how to account for things. Maybe it's even simpler than that. Maybe you've just been telling a story to yourself about what's successful. But now you start to see that oh that actually doesn't really satisfy me. Or maybe you have a story of what's spiritual. Oh, this thing over here is very spiritual. Well, maybe that story also is a little bit outdated too. Because as soon as you say one thing, we all love being in a club, right? And so make oh this is my spiritual club. But then you have to leave something out in order to have your club. Because every club has opinions. So we have to be very careful about this. Anyways, I thought I would uh, just say one last thing and then we'll stop and have a discussion. Um, Is that I told you I have a book coming out uh, in two weeks with my friend Matthew. Um, So I thought I would read you the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) Does that sound okay? So you know how it ends. Because it relates to to this. I won't read you the whole ending, just part of it. You could even close your eyes if you want. Uh, February 15th. This is a letter to Matthew. February 15th, today is Olin, Olin is my son today is Olin's one year birthday I'm in London where it's windy and everything is grey I'm thinking a lot about starting over birth and death the way Valentine's Day it's the day after Valentine's Day appears and then disappears adding up to something impossible to pin down and deep enough to make me miss home Before I left, I was sleeping in my office and I think when I come home, I'm going to try sleeping again in a shared bed with Olin kicking us and kicking me through the night. Olin is mostly nursing, but he loves picking various things off our plates at mealtime, mostly squash. When we visited Karina's parents out west, we fed him blueberries from the garden, which he loved, and then blackberries but the seeds got stuck in his teeth and upset him. His first foods were leaves and grass and sand in the neighborhood sandbox. Once I fed him a little egg yolk, which he loved, and I was told that babies are low in iron, so one night I made him liver, thinking it would be the perfect food, and he responded with a record-setting projectile vomit. (laughs) I'm staying in a third-floor apartment in northwest London on Prinrose Hill. The sun comes in through the tall windows for 30 minutes, and the rest of the day is just grey. The birch tree outside looks cold. Across the way is Chalcott Square, a small park for kids, lined with an iron fence. And kitty corner to the house across the park is a tall purple house where Sylvia Plath lived, She lived there after she met Ted Hughes. She gave birth to her children in that home and died one block from here. Her suicide was tragic, but when I walk by her home with large windows facing east, I imagine a home that one lives in for a really long time and a park that kids get to know, like the ravines I got to know as a kid. Maybe because our family is moving to British Columbia I'm making these little mental films of our family living in new scenarios. I walk to the top of Primrose Hill where you can make out the trains in Camden, the density of buildings along the Thames, and a hundred churches and cathedrals with their tall spires, poking what was once the realm of God. Now the highest realm of the sky is the home of the Shard, the Shangri-La Hotel, and the banking industry. These are the new gods. I walked through Regent's Park and followed an elderly couple walking a black dog over a bridge. They were wearing matching green rain boots with black pants and they each had the same scarves in different shades of red. He had a thick gray beard and she wore lipstick. They looked at each other as they walked and talked, engaged, peaceful, thoughtful, taking care with one another. It might seem weird, but I followed them for 40 minutes. He listened. She spoke. She listened. He spoke. They never saw me. I kept following. He looked at her. She held his hand. They turned around to check on the dog. His right sleeve was worn. His jacket maybe fit him a decade ago. But as he gets old, he's shrinking away from the jacket. His body is moving into a new phase dissolving muscles, softening around the bones. I followed them for a while, trying to remember all these details so that I could call Karina and tell her, this is us. I saw who we are going to grow into. The truth is, I have no desire for a home in Primrose Hill, I don't like dogs, I don't want a car parked at a perfect angle. But the walk with Karina and the two of us interested in what each other is interested in, maybe visiting London, but it could be anywhere, I like that. It's the vision I have so often, together, older, still working on love. Can I keep going? Mm -hmm. There is nothing really special. Oh, I'm sorry. I have so many dreams of how I should be what I can give my family, how it's all going to go, and where we'll end up. I feel presence and absence, attachment and distance, and like I'm always wanting to show as much love as I feel, even through old habits, anxiety, and so on, technology always gets in the way. But through it, all I've come to see is how the tension in my home has always mirrored tensions in myself. So that's why I practice. And this is how I continue day by day with something that feels like faith. There's nothing special about family, my family or your family. We are in a line with every human being that's ever lived. Once, when I was 10 years old, I was standing in line for a ferry to take our family to the island in the Toronto Harbour where my mother's father had a boat. My mother was pregnant with my sister, and my young brother Jamie was behind me trying to get a packet of gum out of my back pocket. My father bought the ferry tickets, and as we waited in line in the cool morning air, I started looking at everyone else in line. I felt as if for the first time I was seeing other human beings, members of other families, their faces, different body types, some with thin legs and others with blonde or gray hair, two young girls who must have been twins, both wearing the same red tights, everyone with packed lunches and hats, freckles, goosebumps, fair skin, dark skin, a woman with a cane, the sun overhead, and none of this seemed special. My family blended in with this long line of other families, all of us waiting for a fairy. All of us having been born and eventually going to the same place, a place none of us can know. Everything was in its right place, and everything was heading in the same direction. In my body, I felt something new about my life. Not my own life, but the whole parade of human beings. Moving through the world of which my family was only one very small part, but the largest part of the world I could ever know. Love, Michael. Thank you for listening.
0: I haven't read that.
1: It's so different reading. So, I hope you get the book when it comes out by the pound. For all your friends and family. So, um, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Why don't we take a few minutes just to talk together and just see what comes up. What you heard then we'll have a break and then we'll do some exercises together and they're not going to be with weights <laughs> anything anybody wants to share comment on
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you should do something with your life.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, let's, so let's
1: not make it an, uh, an either or scenario. Like, I think that there is a time during every day where you should really slow down. Every day. At least one time in the day where you have a period where you really go slow. Maybe that's waking up in the morning and your meditation practice. And then there's a time where you should be busy and do all the millions of things you have to do. And hopefully over time those things come into balance. Because the truth is sometimes in our busyness we're so busy that we're in the momentum of being busy and we forget what the important thing is to do. So you also need to be able to slow down so you can be efficient with your energy. Really efficient with your energy. So, go do something. But
0: well, Because that makes sense. It was just... This morning, I was like, slow down. Like, that's too much. Slow me down. Because i I only... This is it. So, I mean, you know, I have so much to give, so like,
1: You should. You should. And one way you keep the giving grounded is you also have a time to slow down. Mm-hmm. So, Don't you think? I mean... This is not like my philosophy about life. It's just like, I think how we have to live, you know.
0: It reminds me of what you say to kids, like the kids, they complain when they say, I'm bored, what should I do? I'm bored. And and the parents always say, it's okay to be bored. (laughs) And the kids hate to hear it. But it's actually quite important that they are bored. For sure. They slow
1: down. Yeah. And also, you know, like, when I look at people who have a contemplative practice, um, the Dalai Lama, Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, Matthew Ricard, like many people who have real deep practice who are doing like a billion things. A million, they're starting orphanages and building monasteries and, you know, collaborating with scientists and uh, so many projects. So I think that comes out of contemplative life. So, we live in cities and we should have a contemplative life so that we can really put our energy into the city. Build a better city. Yes. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I have uh, always been thinking
0: about what is the meaning of life? What should I use my life to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really haven't found any answers yet. Uh, the thing that i down to is, okay, maybe there is no meaning in life. Mm. Maybe there's the, the only meaning there is is whatever you give the meaning into. Yeah. So that maybe I should just do whatever I feel like and that's the meaning because there's no higher meaning. But I don't know. So mm-hmm. I would like very much to ask you, what do you yeah. think? Do you think there is like some kind of meaning with life or deeper meaning with life or Is it just whatever we choose, or, yeah,
1: what do you think about that? Well, life has no meaning. I mean, there isn't meaning built into our life. Meaning is something that we create through stories. And that's why when we have stories that are outdated, our life feels meaningless. So that's why I think we need to have a practice and we need to be exposed to stories that are not the stories that we know already. Um, So that there can be more meaning in our life. But the, the biology of life itself, I don't think, has a meaning. Meaning is for humans. And it's so important. But you can't just make meaning. It comes from living deeply. That's why I feel like... You know, what I'm teaching is never going to be popular. Because... um, uh, What I'm asking you to do... Is to take your life more seriously. And... um, In taking your life more seriously... You begin to, to let go of the places where you're stuck. And that makes room... For... An emergence of more meaning in your life. I heard a little bit in your question that, and I, this might just be me, but I think I heard in your question a little bit. It also had to do with like what to do for work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because uh, not, yeah work, but it's because you know you use
0: such a big part of your life in in working. Yeah, so many hours and
1: days. Yeah, working and sleeping. Yeah, so. And, uh, so, 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 there is also, yeah, you're right
0: about that.
1: But, but I, I think too with work, like, this, is, this might sound controversial, but I don't think your work has to be like your calling. Like, they can be separate things. Like, you can have some deep calling that is the thing you mm-hmm. love, and it might not be your job. And, like, I think now everyone's trying to make their job like, the thing that's like—it feels like another clinging for identity. It's just a project. Yeah, like what happens sometimes if like our job isn't the thing that like we love like crazy? But like it's okay. It's just you go to work, you're kind to people. There's some meaning in that. Uh, you're not killing anything. No, really, I'm serious. I know this is a bit weird to say this, but but then like your life is so many other things. It doesn't have to be. What's that? Yeah. It's not my dream job, but I try
0: to get some practice Mm. into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as long as it will have to be there 40 hours a week,
1: it's okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, somebody else, maybe one more comment.
0: Okay. I think. Okay, one and then
1: two, and then we're going to have a break. I promise.
2: (laughs) Mmm. Something you said the other day suddenly um, made me aware of why my life has turned out the way it has. Mm. <clears throat> I'm a medical doctor and I'm specialised in anaesthetics. anaesthetics. <clears throat> and I was working many hours and I had <clears throat> I was going through and had been through some traumatic uh, events in my private life. Mm. So I <clears throat> so I collapsed with stress, mm. and for a year I wasn't able to do anything. Mm. I didn't even realize before my wife told me that there's something wrong. Mm. And <clears throat> uh, when I came back, I, I I lost my short-term memory and my capability to to know what to do in in stressed mm. situations. Yeah. So I had to give up my speciality. Mm. And <clears throat> but I, I wasn't aware that I wasn't ready to mm. leave or yeah. to, to find other solutions. But I found another another specialty. Yeah. <clears throat> I was working that for, for some years. <clears throat> but I was missing something and eventually <clears throat> uh, uh, for, 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 for some years, five, six years, I, I lost, I had no short term memory. Oh. I don't remember my wedding, my oh. birth, my child's birth, and oh. things like that. Oh. <clears throat> and then they found out, the doctors, that I had um, epilepsy in my memory center. <clears throat> I, uh, for many years, they thought it was only because of stress.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And it was very. Um, there were two things. First of all, when they found out and I got on the right medication, suddenly I can remember again. Mm-hmm. Not to the same extent as before. Yeah. But at least I can remember that two weeks ago I went to this wedding in this town with these people and, yeah. and so on. That was very new. And and second, and that was the worst, is it has taken me years to realize what my wife told me that, you know, you. why is it that you. You spend so much time being, uh, or this energy, to be so meticulous on your your job. Mm -hmm. And and when you come home, you have nothing left for your family. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I didn't want to admit it. And it was only until yesterday that I realized the connection, because I was tested some years ago by a psychologist, and she said, well, I've never ever met anybody yeah. scoring such a high, making such a high score in identity with your job. Uh-huh. Never met anybody yeah. scoring so high. Yeah. And at the same time you have uh, you have no energy left uh-huh. at all, yeah. so you should, be, you, know, you should be on a sick leave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first response was, I can't, yeah, yeah. there's no yeah. way, yeah. can I just work a little bit? <laughs> So I went back to my job and and I said, can I work just one day a week for a time? And then my employer, he said, well, no, no, no. you can just meet every morning and if you're tired you can go home. And and I tried that for the last couple of months. But now I realize that the reason why I spent so much time on my job mm-hmm. because my ad- identity was there. Right. Regarding yesterday, what we talked about is not fear of dying. Yeah. It's fear of no existence. Yeah.
1: And our job really does that for us. For me, yeah.
2: it was, I was so yeah. identified with my yeah, job. For sure. So it, I, I yeah. just didn't dare to give it up. Yeah. Yeah. So I just spent all my energy there. And, yeah. and today, <clears throat> I'm in a situation that I'm only capable of working. Four or five hours a week. Yeah. Because I've burned, burned out. Yeah. My, my brain is not yeah. working as much as I would yeah. like it to.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that. Can I make a recommendation?
2: <laughs> what do you
1: mean? I'm going to be a matchmaker, and you and Heidi should have tea together. <laughs> <laughs> because Heidi's very wise in this area. Hmm.
2: Yeah, my wife is too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't mean that kind of mash <laughs> <laughs> I mean his personal just, life is taken care very... of also. But the the, the point is, is that I just
2: thank you. It was just a thing. Yeah. to my wife. Yeah, because absolutely. She still there.
1: Yeah. Very well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I think your story, everybody here, has in different degrees, mm-hmm. and sometimes it is destabilizing. Um, and usually, the destabilization when we go through something like that is really healthy. <laughs> yeah,
2: I want to add one more yeah. thing. Okay, but just quickly, so we yeah, can very have a quickly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. First, I was on the wrong medication. Yeah. And the doctor I went to, he said, "Well, you're a doctor. You should know. You can just, you know, find out yourself." Yeah. And I said, "Well, now I'm not a doctor. I'm just a patient." Yeah, yeah. And we had an argument about this for six months, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the point is, it took me six months to find the guts or the courage yeah. to call the hospital and say, I want another doctor. Yeah. And yeah. then she changed the medication, yeah. and I wasn't drugged because I was drugged for six months. I was still working, yeah. but I could hardly get myself out of bed.
1: Yeah.
2: And then she changed the medication, and suddenly I can remember again. Yes and I could go to work right. without being so tired. Yeah, yeah. Just to say how, I mean, it's not so it's, it's frightening, the system.
1: For sure, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we take a break on this note? Mm-hmm. Can we take a short break? Like, five minutes? You forgot. No, oh! Good, you can take okay. a break and ask for a fine. Well, when we come back, we're going to do something different.
0: It's just a thing about parenthood.
1: Yeah, parenthood.
0: And uh, the piece that we've been reading talks about taking care of yourself. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. But uh, with parenthood and having a young child, it's really, really difficult. I think everyone knows that. And um, I just don't know how to balance that, myself and my son. Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know... I come here and then I come out and I'm, you know, all zen and happy yeah. and then I go home and, it... yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm struggling with that. Yeah. Yes, I do my yoga practice, I yeah. try and do some meditation, yeah. but it still feels like I'm on empty and there's yeah. nothing to come yeah. and uh, 18 years ahead. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to know what you, how, yeah. how you would suggest to cope with that. Yeah. When you can't take
1: care of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Can I make a suggestion? Yes, (laughs) of
0: course.
1: You should meet Peter. (laughs) And Bodil. Okay. Who else has parents, who else has kids? Lou? Look at how many people put up your hand if you have children. Okay. (laughs) So you guys should all all talk together. Because um, this is not just your problem. This is a cultural problem. And um, we all need to talk about it more so that we're not alone. Because otherwise, if I answer and say, well, here's a mindfulness practice that you could do, it's going to make you feel like, oh, there's more I have to do to be a better parent and be a. And it's just too internal. So that's one piece. The second piece is you should leave your family twice a year and go on retreat. Especially if you're a mother. Because mothers really want to go on retreat, especially silent retreat. And it's like, they think the whole family is going to explode. Okay, And everything's going to fall apart. They're going to come home and nobody will be alive. Okay, But actually, when you leave your family and you enter contemplative practice, you find yourself again your little beating heart, and it's really, really important. And then the family learns how to live without you, which is really important for them, even though you don't think it is. And then when you go back, you're a completely different person. And your family will say, you should go on retreat more often mom." So, and I really mean this because I have so many mothers who say this to me, oh I can't go on retreat, you know, I'm still breastfeeding or whatever, I say, okay well then bring your baby and in between the meditation uh, sessions just go go and and breastfeed you know Um, or, you know, oh your kid's three years old now, come on the retreat twice a year and leave your kid with the grandparents or whatever it's really good for everybody so anyways um I really encourage this. So, on the one hand, deep practice, being in your own experience. But number two, talk about it with other parents because it's like the nuclear family model is insanity. It's insanity. It makes absolutely no sense. It is not possible for two people to raise a kid by themselves and have jobs and be creative and have sex. it's impossible okay, it's totally impossible so there has to be other people to help out that process so that um, you can enjoy each other and still have a life thank you very much thank you, thank you everybody for sharing, I, I'm really touched by um, you know, these kinds of stories your story, everybody who's spoken so um, We'll have a five-minute break. Thank you to whoever left me four bars of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate it.
2: I have chocolate that is not
1: food. Okay. (laughs) Anybody (laughs) but you can be.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you.